Good morning, Grace. Um, if you don't recognize me, you're new here. My name is Jeff Locast. Uh, I'm the interim pastor who will be walking with Grace, Grace through this next season of ministry and hope my ministry doesn't fall to the ground like that water did. All right, so all you guys are, you guys and gals are special. I also have some special people from Wisconsin uh, visiting. I don't often get family here, but uh, my wife Kim is here, my daughter Jessica, her husband Forrest, and the only two perfect granddaughter, grandchildren I know, Lily and Evie, um, are here. And, and you know, family is going to be, a, you're going to find family in some of the illustrations and in some of the content. And um, uh, early on, when Jessica was dating Forrest, I knew he was special. And um, I just, the more I got to know him, the more I liked him. And and Kim and I are wise enough to know that sometimes relationships don't work out. And so um, after many months after Forrest and Jessica had been dating, I walked up to my uh, daughter and put my hands on my shoulder, and I said, you know, Jessica, I know sometimes uh, relationships don't always last. And just know that um, if something happens to your and Forrest's relationship, we're going to miss you. Well, she's got a sense of humor like me, so she took it well. All right. Well, I, basically, I'm open for business now, meaning the interviewing business. Uh, Amber, our office administrator, has got a calendar laid out. And so feel free, um, even next week, to come to like call Amber in the office and make a, an appointment. I've already got three appointments next week. Um, I'll probably take the week between Christmas and New Year's off. But after that, I get back. The goal will be to interview as many people as possible, uh, probably by the end of February. I'm hoping to get somewhere between 60 to 80 people uh, interviewed. Uh, that way I get to hear about what God has been doing in this church, uh, maybe some things that might be difficult or maybe some things that you would like to see God work in different ways or in, in other ways. So I'm looking to hear that uh, from all of you. I wholeheartedly believe that God speaks through uh, his congregation uh, here at Grace, not just pastors, not just elders. So um, I'm looking forward to hear, hearing what God has to say through you. That's really important. Um, and recognize over the next few weeks, there are going to be a couple survey tools. There's a congregational survey that will go out. Uh, everybody who gets email from the church will get the opportunity to speak into that survey. And there will also be um, a smaller survey kind of for the core leadership that are involved in daily ministries and know the most about the ministries that are going on. So there'll be interviews, church-wide survey, and then kind of a leadership survey. Uh, that has proven to be very effective for me to understand what God is doing um, at a church. And so please take the time uh, to participate there. Um, all right, last week we started our Advent series uh, entitled The Thrill of, Thrill of Hope. So let me give just a couple reminders from last week. Last Sunday we said that many of us can look back at this, this past year and we can say, man, there was growth there, there there was a gift there. There was grace there. It's like God showed up. There's God. There's God. There's God. Now, other of us, of us maybe had a more challenging year. Maybe there were some losses. Maybe there were some gaps in our lives. Maybe there were some deep longings that have still been left unfulfilled. And maybe we're honestly asking, where's God? Where's God? Where is God in my life? So the goal for the Thrill of Hope series is for us to see that God's timing of realized hope in our lives, it can be different than the timing that we would like to see. And then however long our gap, 
we too must wait and not just sit on our hands, but be changed in the season of waiting uh, as we realize God's hope for us that he's given us. A part of my, um, a part of the hope that uh, we're looking at this morning is called empowering hope. And we know that, that though God may be silent, it doesn't mean that he has been still. God's not just up in heaven watching us. He is with us. He is for us. He is in us. Last week, I gave a couple definitions of hope. One of them was kind of um, uh, long on being very specific. The other one was kind of strong on motivations. But let's, so let's revisit those. The first one said this. Hope is the expectation that by integrating God's redemptive acts of the past with our trusting human responses in the present, the faithful will experience the fullness of God in the future. So a lot of words there, all good. The second one's a little more succinct. Hope is a God-honoring vision for the future, for better days, that changes us in the present. So this morning, we're going to see hope in a promise-keeping God. Empower Mary and Joseph to respond to God in humble obedience. That's a strong theme today. God's hope for them and for us is often different than the hopes that we have for ourselves. So we and our hopes must be transformed. But it's hard, right? I mean, it's, it's hard to be humble. It's hard to be humble if we realize we have to be humbled. Uh, we want to be obedient, but it's hard because we don't want to have to obey. We don't want to have to be told what to do. But spoiler alert for us is that we can't do one without the other. Mary and Joseph are great examples of humble obedience, and we want to be humble obedient servants as well, right? Can I get an amen? Humble servants? Amen? We want to be his humble servants more than anything because what God has for us is for our ultimate good and for his eternal glory. Humble obedience is also a defining characteristic of the life of Jesus, whom we follow. Now, the early and immediate events surrounding Jesus' birth, they're much more foreboding. They're more mysterious. They're more complicated than uh, John's birth that we saw last week. All the natural, hopeful circumstances are totally absent from Joseph and Mary's engagement period. Now, first, did you know that you guys have an amazing staff here at Grace Church? You do? Okay, I'm just here to tell you, you do. We can thank God for them, okay? They are so bright and so generous, they offered to write my sermon for me this week. Um, actually, they did agree to help me out with an illustration. So I asked them, I said, I want a big list of bad things that kind of suck the hope and the peace out of people's lives in this season. So that's what I asked them. What are some things that rob people of hope or peace about now? And their number one reason is, oh, having to deal with their new interim lead pastor. That was like the biggest. <laughs> no, actually, they still like me. Uh, but maybe, maybe, and then by next Christmas, I'll be on someone's top 10 unpopular list of people. Who knows? It could happen. All right, so here are some serious things that they mention um, that kind of rob us of hope 
and peace. They said that uh, there, there are old or ongoing hurtful family issues. Those surface. Uh, there's unrealistic expectations of other family members, either that we have of them or they have of us. There's also the loss of family members. This Christmas may be the first time you've celebrated Christmas without a family member. So there's a lot of family-related topics that diminish hope and peace. They also said things like financial pressures kind of rob us of some hope and peace. If there's crushing debt, um, also they said uh, what are, there are some unhealthy comparisons that we might make with other people's lives who appear to have have it all taken care of, and we compare our lives with them, and we go, oh, man, where, where is that in my life? Where's the good stuff? There's also the extreme busyness of work, and Jesse mentioned some of that. There are a lot of family responsibilities. We can just be focusing on the wrong priorities, and there's also conflict, national and international. So that's only part of their great big list of big bad things. So what's so bad? about Joseph and Mary's situation? Well, sure, the announcement of Mary's becoming with child, delivered by the angel Gabriel, that's quite astonishing, but there's an, there's an edge to that. There's an edge to that. There's a ragged, humiliating edge to that, to that leading up to the very first Christmas. So if you've got your Bibles, let's turn to Luke 1, verses 26 through 34. Verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? Now, in the Gospel of Luke, it's clear. We're supposed to connect the two birth announcements of John the Baptist with Zechariah and Elizabeth last week uh, and the birth announcement of Jesus. So let's do a little bit of that. Recognize that uh, the announcements both come by an angel, actually the same angel, Gabriel. Uh, the hearers experience some fear initially, but then the angel uh, helps them to calm, be calm. The hearers are given the humanly impossible promises concerning their child. The babies are also named for them. The future significance of the ministries of these two babies are also summarized for them by Gabriel. One big difference between the two, however, and probably the crux of Mary's question, is the, the imminent timing of birth as well as her virginal state. Now, when you hear such phrases as, you are highly favored by God, the Lord is with her, 
She has found favor, found grace with God. And then adding, you will be with child and give birth to a son. That presents a rather immediate context for that birth, meaning before her wedding to Joseph. Additionally, she and Joseph have not been intimate to consummate their marriage. And while Zechariah's Zechariah's question to Gabriel that we saw last week is born out of full-blown doubt, Mary's is just confusion. So for her, this was not um, a matter of doubt, asking if it could happen, but simply how it would happen. Mary's question is something like this. Okay, Gabriel, I get it. I'm being blessed here. I'm glad to be a part of it. So what's the plan for how this happens? Now, as an Americanized 21st century Christ follower um, who knows the end of the story, like all of us here, I think we overlook the first century Jewish beginning. So let's first try to imagine, what are some of Mary's uh, hopes during this betrothal period? period? These hopes are drawn from the uh, New Testament uh, biblical text and also from some research of customs and practices uh, in that era. So an arranged marriage was probably the case here. Joseph would probably be in his late teens. Mary might be 12 or 13. Mary would know something about Joseph, whom uh, she was to marry, but maybe not as much as you would think. Whatever feelings of affection Mary had for Joseph as his betrothed, she probably hoped that this would grow over time, that he too would grow in his love and care for her. She hoped that they would really work at their marriage, uh, to build a good spiritual relational foundation for their own family, for healthy, growing godly children. She probably hoped for meaningful relationships with the broader family as well. Like all the in-laws, as many as there might be, that they would all enjoy long, happy lives together. There are obviously other hopes that she could have had. But even against this limited breadth of hope, the reality is that every one of these are at risk. These hopes would be dashed if Mary were to inexplicably get pregnant before the wedding, as the angel was saying would happen. So there's a a ragged, shameful edge to the mystery that surrounded Jesus' birth that we don't often think about. From the outside looking in, the atmosphere surrounding Mary and Joseph was at best a guarded suspicion. At worst, it was sinister, menacing. Unlike Elizabeth in the birth of her son, John, there was no Luke 158 for Mary. There was none of this. There was no, uh, her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy in giving her a child, and they shared her joy. That would not be Mary's experience. (coughs) Nope. Mary would be visibly pregnant on her wedding day, or people can count back 
and realize, ooh, this baby came way too soon. So hope for faith for Joseph and Mary as they fully understand these things. What a danger it is for a woman or a man to be accused of sexual immorality. They could be stoned to death if they were found guilty of that. If the woman was not stoned, what a deep disgrace it would be for her. She would be labeled a prostitute, a shameful disgrace her whole life. And what a profound disappointment it is for a man to find the woman of his hopes and dreams, his betrothed fiancée, pregnant but not by him. And unlike Zechariah and Elizabeth's situation, the miracle of this conception is not just highly improbable. It's completely humanly incomprehensible. Whatever joy there was for Joseph and Mary to, to experience, it was better if they didn't share that with anybody. The less that was said, the better. In fact, Scripture records nothing about Joseph ever telling anybody anything. And Mary told only her cousin, Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. So let's think a little bit more about Mary first. And I'll talk to the men here, guys, dads. We don't often understand that much about pregnancy, do we? Really? I mean, we don't understand it. Maybe we've seen it from a distance, but really we don't have a clue. We, we can imagine, we can see that it's physically hard. Uh, there's a lot of fatigue and there are a lot of emotions that go along with it. But what about the difficulties from the outside? What about those? What would others say about Mary? What would Joseph say? This isn't just aka awkward. This would be viewed as absolutely immoral on Mary's part. Others would see her as shameful. They would see her as a disgrace. In this ancient Eastern, Eastern culture, uh, certainly Mary's family of origin would also face a strong measure of societal shame and disgrace as well. So apart from God, Mary was really all alone in this. But still, she would humbly and courageously carry her child with grace and poise from the very beginning. So even knowing the cost, Mary only asks Gabriel how this would happen. So let's look at verses 35 through 38. Uh, the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be, to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth is in her old age and has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed her. So Gabriel answers the question of, of how it will happen. Jesus' birth will be the work of God's creative power through his spirit. Only God can create life out of nothing, just like he did at the beginning in creating the universe. Only he can create life miraculously in a virgin's womb. And Mary's humble response was not, hey, prove it to me. 
but simply let it be to me. Let it be to me as you have said. Mary also hears Gabriel's announcement of her cousin Elizabeth's pregnancy and senses that she may be the only one who could possibly understand or even relate to her. So Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. And in her presence, Mary's joy just kind of spills out. Let's take a quick look at that in verses 46 through 50. Uh, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Uh, This first section of what's often referred to as Mary's Magnificat, this song focuses on what God has done for her and what she thinks about it and how she feels about it. She truly senses the holy tension between the humility of her, her current state and the blessedness of her future. In fact, it may well be that humility is part of what most prepared her to be the mother of Jesus to begin with. Only a woman of humility could be able to maintain hope and fully enter into joy. Hope-filled, humble obedience would empower her to ignore ill treatment at the hands of those who would never understand. I like that about Mary. She had the humility to let God silently continue his good work, even at great cost to her personal reputation. So along with the blessings, the future blessings that God will give her, she also sees God's past and present and future provision for the nation of Israel as well. Let's quickly look at the remainder of her song and the prayer for that. Verse 51, he, meaning God, has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. The second section focuses on how God for close to 2,000 years now has proved his faithfulness to the nation of Israel. He has done it by opposing and dethroning rulers of nations who have opposed Israel. God also cared for those who sought him in their neediness. He's been merciful to the nation even though at times they have not been faithful to him. Mary sees the birth of God's son as a continuance of mercy, a continuance of the provision for the people of Israel. And she sees it as a fulfillment of the promises that God made all the way back to Abraham. Though she didn't know how or when, she knew the child she carried would bring all of this to pass. That's empowering hope of biblical proportions. Now, let's just take a couple of moments to kind of to peer into Joseph's life and, and maybe something of what he's experienced. We find that in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now, the birth of Jesus, Jesus Christ, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man 
unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Excuse me. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and she, you should call, call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. A few important notes here. Scripture clearly teaches the virgin birth in this passage as well. In verse 23, Gabriel reminds again of Isaiah's prophecy, the the promise that was made 700 years before. The virgin will conceive and bear a son. Another important concept here is uh, the betrothed or the pledged in marriage, which means a lot more than what we would say our engagement period is today. This was a legally binding contract that was signed by witnesses, and it can only be broken by a writ of divorce with witnesses. In fact, this state was so legally binding that if the betrothed husband died during um, this engagement, the woman would legally be considered a widow. But no marriage is to be consummated until after the wedding when the bride will, in a ritual procession, move from her parents' home to join her new husband in his home. Now, in verse 19, it said, Joseph was a a just man, a righteous man. And there's a rich history behind this idea. The Hebrew word for a righteous man is Sadiq. Joseph was a Sadiq. That means he was known for his uncompromising obedience to the Torah. Joseph was a Sadiq. Uh, here I'm gleaning some thoughts from some New Testament scholars to describe Joseph as a Sadiq. This means as a Sadiq, Joseph did not eat unclean food. He did not mix with the wrong kinds of people. He didn't keep his carpentry shop open on the Sabbath just to, to earn a few more drachmas. He was a Sadiq. That was his identity. Everybody knew this. Nobody invited Joseph over to have ham sandwiches with tax collectors and prostitutes. He was what people wanted to be. An Israelite wanted to be a Sadiq. An Israel father, uh, Israelite father wanted his daughter to marry a Sadiq. Becoming one meant that you were admired, that you were looked up to. Then you were somebody, and that was Joseph. But now Joseph was a Sadiq with a problem. Put yourself in Joseph's place for a minute. Your fiancé is pregnant, and your whole reputation, identity, revolve around one thing, obeying the Torah, being committed to the Torah. What the Torah says you do, that's who you are. And the Torah has some pretty clear instructions on, on what to do with someone in Mary's condition. I'll leave it to you to read 
Deuteronomy 22 to see how seriously God takes sexual purity before, during, and after marriage. And so for, after who knows how many days of agonizing, Joseph quietly decides to divorce Mary. It's what a Sadiq would do. Then in verse 20, God sends a message to Joseph. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And now you might be asking yourself this question, and, and that is, why did God make Joseph wait until after he struggled with all of this to send him this dream? Joseph would have benefited from, from knowing a little more a little earlier on, right? Why couldn't an angel have come to him before Mary knocked on his door? That definitely would have cut down on the stress, right? Now, you know what the children are learning today in their classes? They're learning that God always gives us what is best. You know what you're learning today? God always gives us what is best. And as adults, sometimes that comes with stress. Followers of Jesus, we don't run from stress. We prevail over stress. So is it possible that stress removal is not God's number one goal for Joseph? Maybe it's not a number one goal that he has for us either. Is it it possible that in getting his world turned upside down and having to struggle between what he thought a, a Sadiq, a righteous man, ought to do, and his longing to show compassion to this young girl. With all of that, is it possible that Joseph was being prepared by God to come to a new understanding of what righteousness means? Here's an unnerving question. Is it possible that there's a ministry of disequilibrium that God allowed to take place in Joseph's life so that he would come into a new era of growth? Maybe. Is it possible for our lives? Grace Church. Is it possible that a season of disequilibrium in the ministry of this church is what God's going to use to grow us in new ways? Maybe. So if we're confused or we're disoriented or uncertain about something, maybe it's not always because we've done done something wrong. Maybe it's because God's getting ready to grow us. Maybe that's what we need to do through empowering hope. Maybe that is to humbly obey. To trust that God is going to do something in our lives that we don't even know about yet. In his dream, Gabriel came and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Why would Joseph be afraid to wed Mary? Of course, Joseph would be afraid of offending God and violating the Torah, but it's not just that. Joseph would be afraid of losing his reputation as well. He would be afraid of what everybody would think about him. I mean, Joseph knew his own doubts when Mary told him about the angel and the conception. So there's no way people in town were going to believe it. His hopes, just like Mary's, were dashed. 
He knew that if he married her, his friends would never accept the account of what really happened. He would not be invited into their homes. He would not be given their business. He would never again be admired and respected as a lover of the Torah. If he committed himself to this baby, to the one who would be known as Jesus, he would do it at enormous sacrifice. His whole reputation, his whole lifetime of work at this point in time would be trashed. But understand this. Joseph didn't ruin his reputation. He sacrificed his reputation. Big difference in those. There was no moral or spiritual lapse that ruined his life. It was empowering hope fueled by the ancient and holy promise of the miraculously conceived Messiah that Joseph humbly and obediently sacrificed his reputation for. And it was compassion for his betrothed wife that Joseph righteously, humbly, and obediently sacrificed his reputation for as well. So as we wrap this up, the empowered hope of, of Mary and Joseph was the same thing that transformed Zechariah and Elizabeth. Mary and Joseph knew hope was born not out of circumstances. They knew hope was is in the God-honoring vision for better days that changed them in their present. They knew hope was found in the promise of God, the promises of God, promises that went back 2,000 years to Abraham. God's promises answered, empowered their hope. And they knew that hope was a person. The biblical word for this person is Messiah, and the Messiah is Jesus. So at great cost of themselves, Mary uh, would give birth uh, to Jesus, and he and Joseph would raise him. Jesus himself, yet unborn, Jesus empowered Hope. Empowering hope took their lifelong uh, faithful responses to God, built them into humble obedience in the present up to and through Jesus' birth. Humble obedience embraced empowering hope. They became people of hope who parented Christ, who is the hope of the world. But let's not forget The greatest humility and obedience was found in Jesus, right? It was found in Him. Uh, Let's not forget the greatest humility and uh, obedience was found in Jesus. The Son of God is humbling Himself to take on flesh. This is radical. I mean, no transcendent, holy, all-powerful, all-knowing God, no God like that does that. Or does He? Uh, Later in life, using his favorite phrase to describe himself, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Again, using the favorite phrase to describe himself, Jesus says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his his life a ransom for many. In Jesus, we have a God that in sacrificial humility, he obeys, he keeps his promises. Yes, but not from a position of earthly power or earthly honor. Let's don't get too theologically removed here. Jesus' first room was a corral in a cave. His first throne was a a food trough in the dirt. 
His first breath was filled with the scent of stale air and smelly sheep. It was through the humiliation of obedience that Jesus would keep his promise. Joseph and Mary do that too, and they humbly obey. Even before Bethlehem, they get it. The empowering hope of their selfless Savior and the hope of their promise-keeping King gave them strength. So how today can we not? How can we respond differently? Brothers and sisters, we have been given evidence of 2,000 years of God's redemptive work through His Spirit, through His Word, and in and through some of you sitting right here. So how can we not humbly and sacrificially obey? Application for us this morning, maybe we start out like this. Ask yourself this question. Where in my life could empowering hope lead me in sacrificial, humble obedience to God? Ask yourself that. No doubt, discouragement, difficult circumstances abound in that place, just as they did back then. But because of the Son of Man and the promises of God, what step of humble obedience is empowering hope leading you to take today? Let's pray. Father, we've looked into your word and we and we recognize as, as best we can looking back what the what those challenges were. But Lord, we recognize you're not just a God of the past, you're not just a God of the future, but you're the God in our present. And so, Father, we look to you, we look to your Son. We look to your spirit who indwells uh, every believer. What and how would you lead us? How can we serve you faithfully, obediently in ways that maybe you've been asking us to for a long time? But now we get it. So, Father, do your work in and through us at Grace Church. In Christ's name, amen.